Well, friends, we, we're on the back end of the midterm elections. Uh, nobody's going to cheer about that. It was a rough one. It's, it's, it's been a rough one for, for a while. It's probably going to be a rough one moving forward, but nobody's wholly satisfied. But even so, we didn't, a lot of us didn't hide, have the highest expectations. Hopefully you went out and voted, if you can, exercise that, that right that many have laid their lives down for. But, you know, even though we kind of have low expectations now, we still have this, if we're honest, if I'm honest, this kind of deep, deep, it's buried now deeply since that maybe this will turn out to be the fixer. Maybe this will turn out to bring in, you know, say a new world order, okay? But um, sort of, you kind of have that, that stuff down there somewhere, and it's not so much, it doesn't line up with what we know that um, our representatives are gonna bring in, but it's, it's hardwired into us to desire a new world order, a renewed creation in which things aren't broken, and hey, in which we aren't broken. But that's way more than the political state can deliver, way more. Um, and so it's what we look at today that Jesus has actually inaugurated and sends us into is a new world order. So what I'm calling, we have Trinitarian Church there on the, on the slide, but what I'm, what's going to be on the website and what I've titled this sermon is not the Great Commission, but the Great Recommission. The Great Recommission. And what Jesus gives here is a new, is a new world order. So what he's just done He's risen, he's, he's been crucified, he's been buried in the cold ground, representing the old humanity in his death, anyone who would look to him, and he paid for those sins and buried the old humanity, and then he rose to a new kind of life, and he's, as the risen Christ, he meets his disciples, the 11 now, because Judas hanged himself, he betrayed Jesus, um, on a mountain that overlooks the Sea of Galilee, it's quite possibly a mount, mountain called Mount Arbol, which I've been to, had the pleasure of being on top of, so I can kind of see it in my mind's eye as the setting. He's resurrected. He's about to ascend. He doesn't do that here. He ascends uh, on the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem. But he's looking out. You can see from this spot everywhere that they ministered locally, but then you can see basically in every, not basically, you can basically see the world from that spot. You can see in every cardinal direction. And so I think there's a, that's was very intentional that as he commissioned them, he said, hey, go out, start here, have your ministry be local, but go out into every nation and preach the gospel and make disciples. So um, a new Adam has arisen. We see that big time, this new world order packed into the language here of the Great Commission. Jesus is a man, um, but he is also God, and we see that here in this text. Um, He's commissioning a new race of men and a new people, and he's sending them out. So what we see here... um, in, I believe it's verse, verse 17, and when they saw him, what does it say? It says they worshiped him. These are monotheists, okay? These are good monotheistic Jews that he is approaching, that have known him, that have been with him as he used, as he used the restroom, as he ate, as he slept, as he cried, as he was limited as a man, okay? As he did all these things that we do, 100% man, 100% human, um, and yet, these monotheists who believe in the uncreated creator who spoke the worlds and the stars into being and who knit us together in our mother's womb, what do they do when they see the resurrected Christ? He approaches and they fall on their faces. They worship him. Because they, what are they saying? They're saying, you are man, but you are God. We don't understand it, but we know it to be true. You are God. And he talks like that. He says, among other things in the Great Commission, he says, Teach the disciples that you make as you go out into the, all, the, all the nations. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Prophets in the Old Testament didn't talk like that. 
How did prophets talk? Prophets said, thus saith the Lord. Here's the word of God. Let me trumpet it to you. Jesus doesn't say that. He's, he opens his mouth and he says, teach them to obey all that has come from my mouth. I'm the one who gives commands. I am God. That's what he did at the Sermon on the Mount. Moses went up the mountain to receive God's law and to come back down and give it to the people. Jesus walks up on the mountain and he sits down and his disciples come around him and he doesn't receive the law, he gives it. He gives it. This is God. He is the lawgiver, but he is the God, and he is the God-man. Um, and we see that when he says, all authority, this is the beginning that we often miss of the Great Commission. Before he starts giving commands, what does he do? He says, check this out. Look at me, fixate on me, fixate on what I've done. He says, all authority has been given to me. So here's this man that they know very well. They spent three solid years with him. And almost every waking moment, they've seen him crucified. They lost all hope. They forgot that he said he was gonna rise, but he did. And now he says, hey, I have all authority. This is a picture that Daniel 7 gives us hundreds of years previously. It's a prophecy centuries early, earlier that was given to the prophet Daniel as he was in exile in Babylon. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That was Jesus' favorite name for himself. It designated his humanity, but it also shot us back to this prophecy. It showed us that he, has, he would be given all power. And he came to the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. Who's the Ancient of Days? God, of course, the uncreated one. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. America's gonna pass away. Canada's gonna pass away. Kenya's gonna pass away. China's gonna pass away. And on I could go. His dominion will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Notice the passivity of his statement about having total dominion. Notice the passivity. Not I have taken all authority, but what? All authority has been given me. He did all of the gruntiest grunt work, the blood, the sweat, the toil, the tears, the becoming of sin, the bearing of the wrath of God for you and for me and for anyone who would trust in him. He went to the lowest place. And because of that, God the Father has given him everything that he earned for us that we couldn't earn for ourselves. He has it all now. It's all been given to me by the ancient of days, by the Father. You see the beginnings of this Trinitarianness? It's the most explicit Trinitarian statement in the New Testament, okay? And it's the work of all of God accomplished through Christ, given to us by the Holy Spirit, okay? Psalm 110, a few more scriptures that show us what Christ has here. This is not a new thing. This has been prophesied from of old. Psalm 110, um, God the Father in the first verse, he says, he's talking to the Messiah to come hundreds of years later, and it's, he says to the Messiah, what does he say? He says, this is the most quoted Old Testament psalm. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament by the writers of the New Testament. He says, the Father says to the Messiah, hey, you finished your work. Doesn't say that, but basically, you finished your work. Sit here. You have, in other words, sit down. You've no more work to do. It's finished. What was the last thing Jesus said on the cross? It's finished. Sit down. Sit here while I make of your enemies an ottoman, a footstool for your feet. Putting your feet on the heads of your enemies was a sign of total conquest. 
total conquest, crushing the head of the snake, finished, okay? It's as good as done. That's a prophecy of Messiah, and Jesus takes that up here before he commissions. Psalm 2, um, today I have begotten you, the Father says to the, his Messiah, to his son, ask of me the nations as an inheritance, and I'll give them to you. I'll give them to you. And then the picture we get of him, give of him, get of him is that any kings and powers, political powers at all on the earth that don't line up with him and that shake their fists at him, that try to disobey him, eventually he will break like their clay pots and he, is, he has a rod of iron in his hand and he smashes them to bits. Only his dominion and authority will, it will ultimately remain. And it says, it end, the Psalm 2 ends this way, kiss the son, don't resist him. Foolish people, kiss him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. His wrath against injustice, his wrath against evil, it's quickly kindled because he's so just. Hey, and here's how the psalm ends. Blessed are all they who take refuge in him. Only safe place is to get inside the burn circle where the fire's already been, right? Only safe place is to hide in the rock, as God passes by, okay? And then Philippians 2, Paul in the New Testament um, says that he emptied himself of everything and went to the lowest place for us. Therefore, what? God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that in his name, eventually, every knee, every knee, even the ones that don't acknowledge him as king, every knee is gonna bow and every tongue is gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he says, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. And that takes us, guys, Straight back to Genesis 1.1. All, I have now all authority in heaven and on earth. It's a recreation. It's a restart. Um, essentially what's happening here is in Genesis 1 when God makes all things, he makes all the heavens and the earth, then he makes humanity and he sets humanity over his creation and he says, he gives a command. What does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why I'm calling it the great recommission. Because the first time didn't work. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and began to produce progeny that were depraved, broken, full of sin, and rebels to God. But Jesus is starting something completely new here. He's, he's, he's the second Adam. He's doing what Adam couldn't do. And he is saying, now anyone who looks to me will have my DNA. Just like, just like you had the DNA of the first Adam and Eve when you were born from them, okay? You, as you make disciples, they will have my DNA and my spirit because I've done everything necessary for that to happen. People will be born a second time, a new time, and they will go out, you will go out, and they will go out through all the earth, and thus will my kingdom grow, okay? Until I have, and I have all authority, and that's why that's gonna work, okay? Um, so it's, it's, it's a second Genesis one and two, and this time he will not fail, he has done all the work necessary so that it won't. So that's it. That's, uh, that's the main point is, is um, he has established a new world order. This is a great recommission from the second Adam. He has all authority. He's done it all. And now he gives us these commands. So the rest of it's just application. The rest of it's three points of application, okay? So what is kind of the second point. So what, all right? Um, there's a new world order. So what? So first thing out of the three is we are to be a people who go. We are to be people who go. Verse, verse 19, um, he says, because I have all authority, go therefore and make disciples. Um, again, don't miss this. So often we think great commission, we think make disciples. That's not how it starts. It starts with them worshiping 
the living God who has taken on flesh, who has risen from the dead and defeated death, and then with him saying, I have everything. I've done it all. I have all power. Only people that have power are those that I've given power to. Just like he said to Pilate, right before Pilate allowed him to be crucified, you wouldn't have that power if God hadn't given it to you. Now Jesus has it all, and we're in him if we trust in him, okay? So he says, because of that, go therefore. I have a New Testament professor, Mike Kruger, and he would teach this and say, kind of like, what part of no don't you understand when you say it to your kids? Have you ever said that to your kids? You swore you wouldn't, and your parents said it to you, you know? I, I think I might have before. It, you know, after you give them enough reasons, eventually it's just like, no. What part of no don't you understand? Um, he said, what part of go don't you understand is kind of what the church needs to hear sometimes because we can be a people that stay and that stay and that are scared and that there's stasis and there's stagnation and there's navel gazing. And Jesus says, this is what is to characterize you because of, because of what I've done and who I am and the fact that I have all authority as a man now representing you. Go. You are to be a people on the go. What part of go don't you understand? Um, the default for us, Jesus says, is not to stay, is to go. And you might have a very good reason. He's called you to stay back and not to go out to the nations, to those who haven't heard. But we need to be looking. The, our impetus is for world mission. The elders were in Yemen. They were called back. Why are they here? Because they got kicked out because of a civil war. And he keeps wanting to go back, but God's like, no, stay here. My, your call is to stay here for now and to go in little ways. Okay, so if you, unless you have a call to stay, Jesus is saying here, we are to be a people who go, who go to the to the nation, so our default is to go. It was similar with us, we thought we were going, we kinda got halfway to India, did some studies over in, in the UK, and then we thought we were gonna continue to go, but God called us back, and we're so glad he did, but it's a call. Our default's not just to stay, okay? Um, go where? To the nations, to the ethne in the Greek. Um, half of the world or more is here in Houston. Half of that half, at least, is in, is in a three mile radius of this spot that I'm standing in. Okay, um, if you reach Houston, there's a sense in which you reach the world. If you reach a neighbor in Houston, there's a sense in which you reach a nation. Um, so on that note, go doesn't necessarily mean move to India or to Yemen. It might, it might, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, especially in a city like Houston. But our tendency um, is to stay in our Netflix haven, to stay in our castle, to, can't, to stay in our safe place, whether we're at home or in our cubicle at work, um, just to play it safe. But Jesus says, no, if what I've done, I've really done, and if I really am who I say I am, the God-man, it doesn't make any sense for you to not be a people on the go. So at the very least, here's what I'm saying. We are to be a people who are constantly moving out, who are constantly going out, who are constantly reaching out, not focused in on ourselves, but Outward focus like the Trinity, loving the loving God in worship, receiving all that he has for us in Christ and on the move constantly to our neighbor, to our coworker, to those in need. And isn't everyone who doesn't know our good God who has moved heaven and earth to reconcile us to himself and to bring us into the love of the Trinity, isn't everyone who doesn't know that love to be pitied and to be shared with? And, uh, and so we are to be a people we had a big people on the go. Um, Seth, when he first learned to walk, I remember one th the one thing I remember about him is you'd put him down and he would just start moving. Kind of like a toy that you wind up and you put him down and tick, tick, those little feet kind of. And the, our girls weren't like that as much, but I feel like, and maybe some girls are, but our boys just tend to be horizon chasers. 
You put him down in a park and five seconds later, I see Jake smiling in the back because I know both his boys are like that. But boys just run straight out. They, they want to go, they want to go to the edge of the world to where the sidewalk ends. And that's really a great picture of how we ought to be. Constantly, one of, one of the, our friends here says faith, and he got this from a book, um, um, but it's, he says faith is spelled R-I-S-K, uh, risk. And so constantly risking because of what's been done and because we know who we are and what we've been given for free through the work of Jesus Christ, constantly risking, constantly going out. Um, and it's just a perfect Sunday in God's providence. Again, didn't necessarily plan this, but to have the blessing of ordaining four parish leaders who were planting and the whole idea of parish is to be a family and to know each other and, and to really know each other. to really get into the nitty-gritty and to share the ups and the downs of life together and to love each other unconditionally with the love that we've received and for the world to see that and to go, man, I want some of that action, but also to be a family on mission who goes out, constantly raising up and training up leaders and growing such that we are planting other parishes and seeing the church grow into the areas God's given to us and to saturate with the fire of the living God, with the light that he is, this area that he's given to us. So it's just beautiful that God in his gracious providence gave us this, these, two, uh, these four parish leaders and these two parishes to send out. Um, and that's who we are as a church. We want to not keep this in, but go out as individual disciples, share life in families, multiply those out, and then multiply, uh, send out churches and plant churches too. So cool that uh, Paul and Lindsay are a parish that will hopefully be growing into a church that will send out other parishes and other churches as well. So thank you, Lord, for that. Um, so we're to pe- be people who go, but also we are to be a people who not only make, but multiply disciples. So that's kind of the main focus of this commission here is we go in order to what? To make disciples. He doesn't say go and evangelize, go and scatter the seed and share, and then if someone comes to, comes to me by faith, keep moving. He doesn't say that. Um, he doesn't say burp the, spirit, the four spiritual laws on somebody, walk them through the Roman road. He doesn't say that. He says go and make disciples. Um, a couple things here. The, the construct, the grammatical way this reads in the Greek is going, it's a gerund, it's, an inf- it's, a, it's a participle. Going, being a people who are constantly on the go, moving out, sharing Jesus Christ and the new world order uh, with everyone around you, especially those that are in darkness, right? Um, going, make disciples. So as we're on the go, as we're ambulating, as we're moving throughout the various nooks and crannies of life, and there are many, and some of them are stinky with diapers. Hey, why did I say that? Because most of our lives aren't sexy, okay? It's not gonna always look like, most of the time it's not gonna look like moving to Yemen to go preach the gospel in a way that looks, it could be changing a diaper. It could be at work in a cubicle. But even in those moments, being a people who are moving out, who are going, and as we're going in every area, what are we doing? We're making disciples. Every area of your life, God has given to you as a disciple-making opportunity. That's how disciples are made. Not, I mean, yes, through Bible study, yes, through prayer, yes, but making all of our lives an intentional, bringing people along. Because everything we do ought to be holy, set apart, sanctified. Um, If it's not, you shouldn't be doing it. If you can't drink a beer uh, to the glory of God, you shouldn't be doing it. Okay, 
But that can be part of your discipleship. Some of the sweetest times I've had being discipled are with a glass of wine on the back porch. Okay? So bringing people along as we are on the go, making disciples um, together as we follow the master. Uh, And secondly, so going, we make disciples. But secondly, there's no such thing. This is one of the things that's sort of implied strongly in this. There's no such thing as a non-disciple, as a Christian who's not a disciple, who's not following the master and seeking to obey all of his teaching, not just some of it. Not just I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, it doesn't matter how I live. No, no, obeying everything he taught, following him constantly. And there's no such thing as a non-disciple-making believer. That category doesn't exist for Jesus. He's saying, square one, if you're following me, you ought to be calling others to follow me too, multiplying, making disciples. Um, Discipleship is not the step after getting saved. It is the only step. You are a disciple or you are lost. This is a category Jesus gives us, okay? Discipleship is not a graduate course. It's the only course. It's the only course. We see that here. Our call is to be disciples, to make disciples, to replicate. Think again, Genesis 1, little God images, little Christians. What's a Christian but a Christ follower, someone who has the spirit, the breath, the life of the living God in him through the work of Jesus, okay? Um, that is what Christ has called us to. It's hard to multiply your life if uh, you are not following Christ and you don't want to see you multiplied out. So it's a check, isn't it? It's a check. It ought to be to all of us, like a constant. If I'm to be going and making disciples, do I want my others' lives to look like, would more of my life be a good thing? (laughs) Would it speak well of the master? Would it bless creation? And if not, it's a check. Whoa, okay? It's a check for all of us. Um, I, I sold Cutco knives for a while in seminary, and uh, so many stories I could tell, but the one thing I want to say about that is I just found that it's a real pleasure to sell something that is a quality product, because when you come back, I know, look at me selling right now. I'm still licensed if you want to buy some knives afterwards. No, I'm not. It really is, though, because you don't have to do this. When you see somebody a year after that that's bought those knives, it's a lifetime guarantee. It's a great knife. Here I am selling it. (laughs) Who knew that God would use that to get me ready for preaching? Um, It really is, though. If you're selling a crappy product, man, that's just embarrassing. It's hard there, and then you don't want to see the person. But if you sell sell them a product you really believe in, it's, it's great. It's like, how are your knives? How are you doing? Can I service them in any way? Can I sell you more? Um, and I feel, like that is, um, I feel like that is a bit like what it is to, to follow Christ. We want to soak in him in, in such a way that we are filled with him, and it is our absolute pleasure to see others uh, getting saved, becoming disciples, becoming like him, okay? We ought to be, in a sense, selling him just in our very lives. Um, And the more that we press into that, the more we are going to want to get to know him because the more that we get to know him, the more sold we are on this lover of our souls because he is good and he is beautiful and he is truth and he is faithful and he is forgiving and on and on and on. Okay, um, our strategy here at this church is make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, and then we've tacked on engage in partnerships as well. Um, but a little on that, and then back to disciples. So make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches. Um, 
multiplying parishes, just some of the numbers. We had one, we started with one parish like all of our churches do in 2015, three years ago. Um, and now three years in, we have six. We just, so we have seven, but that's, I'm not counting the Ramseys because they're gonna be a church, um, God willing. So at year 10 in 2025, just if we take every two years, if we double, okay, um, which I think we're finally on track to begin possibly doing and raising up leaders, um, and we're looking towards saturation. In 10 years from inception, so that's 2025, we'll be at 80 parishes. 18 years from now, 1,280 parishes. This is simply, this is fairly conservative, simply doubling every two years. Um, and then in 22 years, we'll be at 5,120 so again, our goal is saturation. That's parishes, okay? Multiply parishes. Not add parishes, multiply parishes that, that multiply parishes, okay? Um, and with churches, let me run some numbers past you. There's one, there's us now, but in five years from our inception, from our planting, our goal every, is every five years to plant a church, that plants a church in five years. So if we run those numbers um, in a year or in, so... We have two years to plant Paul and Lindsay. It should take less time. So we're in that time frame. So by year five, we're looking at two churches, God willing. By year 10 in 2025, we're looking at four. By year 2035, year 20, we're looking at 16. The numbers are still small. Okay, but think about turning that flywheel. In 2045, in 30 years, we're looking at 64 churches. In year 40, 256. And then if you fast forward 20 more years, 4,096 churches. Okay, so what's the point there? The point is, we're really about multiplying disciples, parishes, small groups of disciples, and then churches. And the numbers aren't impressive in any of these scenarios until you stay with it, believe it's what Christ has called us to, and keep turning the flywheel and pass it on to the next generation. And then they get straight nutty. They get crazy. They get crazy. They get saturation point crazy. And so... Uh, but here's my point there. That's just sort of a sidebar. When it comes to the making disciples bit, make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, we're doing less well. Okay, we're doing less well. We've been multiplying parishes, not just as a church here, but as Sojourn, um, the Sojourn Collective. We've been planting churches. Um, but multiplying, dis making disciples and multiplying them is the most important one. Because if that doesn't happen, the other ones end up petering out, right? It's like building a building. You can be super pumped about the mid and the top floors, but if the bottom one isn't built and built right, they don't matter, right? The bottom floor of this is, is the, uh, the disciple making and the, and the disciple multiplying. To plant churches, we must multiply parishes, and to multiply parishes, we have to multiply disciples. Um, let me give you some numbers that'll hopefully blow your hair back a little bit. So Jesus discipled 12 men. Your goal is to win, let's just, this is hypothetical, okay? And we're gonna be talking a lot more about this in, in our parish communities and so on and so forth moving forward. But your goal is to win one person to Christ every year for 12 years. That's pretty, that's not asking a ton, a ton, right? Okay, um, just like he did. He, he won a ton to himself, but let's just say you wanna gather 12 disciples in 12 years, one a year, but disciples who make disciples. So you want them to do the same. Okay, one disciple every year for 12 years and you want them to do the same. Year one, it's two of you. Year two, it's four of you. Year three, it's eight of you. Year six, it's 64 of you. But after 12 years, after 12 years, it's 4,096 of you. You would have personally, McNab, Bob McNabb says this, 
You would have personally discipled 12 people, but you would have impacted thousands. And he says this, God can do much more through you than with you. You've discipled 12 people who you've trained to go ahead and do the same thing, one a year. That multiplication, that flywheel effect is huge if you just keep doing that and have confidence that this is Christ's battle plan because he has all authority. Not because, it's, not because we have what it takes, because he has what it takes and we are in him. And this is what he's called us to for total dominion, for the new world order, okay? Let me give you some more stats that are exciting. Um, for in, a, in another scenario that McNabb in a book called Spiritual Multiplication in the Real World, um, which is coming out in, the, in a book list that I'm, we're putting online this week, hopefully um, the, just a recommended book list under discipleship, it'll be there. But 400 people surveyed, they had a highly effective category. For the highly effective category, there was a minimum number of people that must have led um, someone to Christ in the past three years. Two people. So for the highly effective category, out of the 410 they surveyed, they were to lead, just lead two people to Christ in three years. Okay? Um, and then there was a minimum number of their disciples who must have led someone to Christ in the past three years, also two. So of their disciples, just, they just need to lead two people, those disciples, um, to Christ, okay? And then thirdly, a minimum number of spiritual generations below them, three. So you led someone to Christ, and then they led someone to Christ, and then they led someone to Christ, okay? So only 12% of the 410 were highly effective in that category. He says this, he says, we've calculated that if, check this out, if a 22-year-old will make disciples at the same modest rate, our highly effective disciple makers have proved possible. Again, just think, three people led, two people led to Christ in three years, and then they, do, they lead two people to Christ in three years, okay? And then three generations deep, okay? Um, then they will have impacted 22 million, almost 1,000, 619,537 people by the time they're 78. Not, not just through their own contact, but through them and those that they've sent out and then those people have multiplied out in the same way, in like manner, okay? Many of the people we surveyed exceeded the minimum thresholds needed to be considered highly effective. Even if you only experienced half the level of effectiveness in multiplying, as our calculations assume, he says, you will still have impacted millions of people in your lifetime, okay? Now, I said we weren't doing this very well at making and multiplying disciples, but that's not totally true. I was mainly a setup. It was partially a setup because I wanted to give you some hunger and give you some numbers. But God, we started to see. It takes some time, some plowing of the ground, right? We started to see some of you begin to make disciples. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. Some Bible studies have been started. You're starting to reach your neighbors. We're starting to multiply out. Um, it's really neat to see. Um, we're starting to see a movement. Um, but the fact is that whether or not we are, you can still feel, as I give these numbers, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, like it's up to me, okay? Like it's up to me. Um, but the fact is that he makes it so clear in this commission that it's not up to you. He's done all the work necessary. It's up to him. And ultimately, we're not, we're not making little us's. We're pointing people to Jesus and telling them about the good news of Christ and seeing him take over. Okay, and, and, and we're focused on him too. And we're just inviting people to the feast. That's all we're doing. Um, verse 17 says, kind of encapsulates this to me. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. But that word some is often translated in Matthew, they. So in other words, and when they worshiped him, uh, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Check this out. But they doubted. 
So these, they were convinced because of what they'd seen that Jesus Christ, this is an alternate and a very possible reading, whether it's but some doubted or but they doubted, there were some who were worshiping his closest companions, worshiping him as the one true God, as the God-man, as the one of the new order, right, who had brought the new order in, who still had serious doubts about, like, what, what do we do from here? And then when you give us this commission, now what? How is this going to be accomplished? But guess what? It's okay. These pillars of the church doubted, but he gave them him, his very self. He had done everything necessary for this to happen, and he poured out his spirit into them, and here's where we stand today. And so I feel very, very much in connection with those who were right there on Mount Arbol with Jesus Christ. I, we are very much in the same strain. He is speaking to us in the same way that he spoke to them, and we are getting to do what they have done, and we're holding their hands and then passing on this commission and passing on the gospel to others and seeing. So we're not adequate, they weren't adequate, but he hasn't failed, and he won't fail. And he won't fail because he has done it. He has done it. Um, the focus, the, focus the, the, the warp and woof of this text, is it, it centers on really one word, all. It dominates the whole passage. It rings throughout the whole passage. All, all, and always. Check this out. I have all authority. Therefore, now he gives, because I have all authority and I've done everything necessary, right, for this new world order and for your salvation, therefore go and make disciples, what? Here's the second all, of all nations. And I am with you always. Okay, and we worship, but we also doubt, but that's okay. Because he has done it. He has died in, the, in our place that we deserve to die and risen to a new kind of life that is in us if we but look to him. And he is adequate for this task. And he will accomplish it. And he's called us to it. Um, and finally, so finally, we are to be a people who go and multiply disciples. Here's the thing, together. Together. Note the Trinitarian nature of this command. The Father gives all authority to his Son who has won it. The Son will be with us, his sons and daughters, by faith, always by his spirit. I read a book that I've mentioned before called The Captain Class, and it's about the 17 top teams of all time across every sport that qualified since records have been being kept for the past about 150 years. And he found in his forensic research, it was the numbers that told the story. He didn't have any ideas other than, I want to see what made the best teams of all time. And the difference maker in the end, was one thing, captains, team captains. That's why he called it the captain class. And with one exception, with one exception, there were never the stars. They were never the most talented people on the team. The same thing for all of them that made these teams great was that every captain was not focused on his own stats. He was on, focused on the team winning. He was focused on the team. Um, I'm reading a book called Extreme Ownership, written by a former Navy SEAL, and two former Navy SEALs, and who might still train the SEALs, but do a lot of consulting. And what they say, among other things, is that individuals don't win wars. Teams win wars. So they train, they train for teams to go out and to work together. Um, and McNabb, this guy that wrote Spiritual Multiplication, he found the same in his research. Discipleship, and this is where we end, okay? Last, last application point. It's not, this is where we get into the church focus. It's not an individual sport. 
It's not an individual sport. It's made to be done in teams. He writes this, individual laborers are not miniature bodies of Christ. When we study spiritual gifts, we quickly recognize that no believer has all the gifts. And because of this, we need each other. And parishes are a great, um, a great sort of illustration of that. We send folks out into the places God's called us in families. And we multiply in families, okay? Christ had his 12 disciples that he spent his life with. Um, he had three within that that were quite close to him, closer, and then he had one, a beloved disciple, within that, right? Paul had Barnabas, Timothy, John Mark, and others. He didn't go out alone. Um, God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so the way he has made the world is he's done it in community, and he's made us to be in community together with him, drawn up into his community. This is how, this is how it is done. It's not... We want to do everything solo and as individuals because we're a very individualistic culture. But that's not the way that discipleship is best done. There's a pastor in town who um, did an awesome presentation, and he said, man, I, they have a huge church, and they've been doing dis- trying to do discipleship for 20 plus, 20 years, eight, 19, 19, 20 years now. And they've realized, they asked at some point five, six years ago, seven years ago, I think, they asked their leaders, the guys and, and girls who were just bursting with Christ, what was the difference maker for you? Every single person said the same thing. One person or a small group, a very small group, okay, um, that just spent good quality time with me, months, perhaps years, and then, I, and, then asked, and then told me, I want you to replicate this, okay? And we're not gonna do this forever. There's an end date, and then go and do it with someone else. That's how lives are changed, typically. Um, and so he says, circles, small groups even, which are essentially our parish families, they're groups of 10 to 20, he says, so he, the shorthand for him is circles. You sit in circles typically when that, when that happens. It, it, circles don't change lives. They're necessary, but what changes lives in discipleship to make us burn with the image of Christ is microgroups. That's what he, he calls them, Mic, not circles, but microgroups. And I've experienced this with one-on-one mentorships, one-on-two, one-on-three, and right now I'm in one that's, we call ourselves the Five Amigos, silly name. But um, it was four of us, and then we added a fifth. And it's small enough that you can't hide there's accountability, you can know each other on a deeper level, and you can walk together in a different way. And so one of the things we want to start, we've done this a little bit, but we want to start encouraging more out of our parishes is just to find two or three or four people. Might call them anchor groups, might call them something. It doesn't have to be a formalized thing, but we want to start focusing on that. And then once that happens, once we see people come to Christ, we draw in, we spend time with them, six months, nine months, a year, then we say, okay, it's time for you to go and do likewise. Okay. Um, McNabb said this again. He said, Jesus did not build individual disciples. He didn't meet Peter before work at the Capernaum Starbucks for a one-on-one meeting and then meet John for a fish sandwich at the local seafood restaurant. Instead, he worked hard to build his followers into a disciple-making team. Jesus' goal was never to build individual disciples. He built a team and expected them to go build other disciple-making teams called churches. It's God's plan A for, the, for world domination, friends. And don't miss this before I close. Jesus, what does he say after he gives these commands um, to go and then going to make disciples and then to do that in teams, in small groups together? He said this, he said, and behold, he kind of could see the consternation, the doubting, the worry on their faces. He didn't ascend here, but he was close. They knew he was leaving, he told them. But he said, hey, 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 behold, I am with you always. And here's, check this out. In the Greek, it's even sweeter. 
Literally in the Greek it says, and behold, I, I am with you always. He doesn't have to say that. He could have just said, behold, I am with you always, like it says in English. But in the Greek, he specifically says ego. That means I, that's the pronoun. Ego, I, me, I am. Okay, what is he doing? What is he doing? Okay, he's two things at least, maybe more. He's being emphatic. We will tend to forget in this thing, in this mission that he's called us to as a church, in our smaller groups, in our families. We will tend to try to muscle up and do it on our own. We will tend to get discouraged. We will tend to despair. We're prone to. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He says, hey, behold, I, even I am with you, okay? Um, He's also very clearly saying He's taking the I am to himself, as he did in his life before the cross. I am. I. I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the one who is with you. And that's the second thing he's doing. I am not someone else. The Holy Spirit is not another God. The Holy Spirit is not another presence. The Holy Spirit is Christ in you. Jesus, the one that you will see face to face one day and say, finally, I've known you for so long, and now I see you. And now I get to wrap my arms around you and be with you bodily forever. That one, he is with you, and he will never, ever leave us. And he will accomplish um, this conquest of the nations through us. So a new world order has begun, and what's it going to look like? It's going to look, what's God's kingdom? It's going to look just like it did times a jillion when he was on planet Earth. People get healed internally, externally, okay? People get encouraged. The proud get admonished so that they can possibly get saved. Because if you stay proud, you can't get saved. You have to confess and say, I need you. You died for me. I deserve what you had. Okay, he even admonishes out of love. The humble get lifted up. Tears get wiped. All boats rise when the king is reigning. Because when the king is reigning, he gives of himself. And he blesses. When the evil reign, they take from others. The king reigns, he gives. And through his body, the boats of our culture will start to rise. And they already have started to in the areas that we inhabit. And I've seen it with my own two eyes. And I love it. And if I love it, who am evil? If I who am evil love it, Jesus, your king, who is in you, who is with you, who will never leave you or forsake you, loves it. It's beautiful. It shows people him. And on that note, let me share this illustration and close. Um, Neptune was the first planet that was not discovered by being seen. Rather, it was discovered by observing Uranus and observing an irregularity in its orbital path. It was an irregularity, and so they deduced from that that there was another body somewhat close by that was causing that irregularity. So Neptune was discovered through deduction, Here's my question I want to pose as I close. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God and the God-man and his conquest for the good of creation and for the salvation of souls was discovered by those in our orbit, okay, through the irregularity, the good irregularities that are seen in our culture? What? Why is he giving that money away? What? Why is he serving in that way? What? Why are they going into these areas of town? Why are they loving each other in such a way? How are they so close? Why are they on mission? 
Why are they constantly not trying to grab rights, but there's this security, there's this happiness, there's this deep joy. What if? What if God and Christ in his work could be discovered through the irregularities in this body? And you know what? It's already happening. Let's pray. Lord, I, what can I say? I thank you for doing absolutely everything necessary for this mission to be accomplished. And it will be. And we get to be part of it. We love you. We worship you. Make all of our lives worship. Make us risk takers. Make us people who are on the go making disciples. Having faith in the goodness and the all-sufficiency of you and what you've called us to. Not inventing new missions, but keep, keeping on turning that flywheel and turning that flywheel and turning that flywheel in every area of our lives until every knee bows and every tongue confesses, Lord, and darkness recedes and light is just blazing, 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 blazing in this geography that you've already given to us. Give us courage, Lord. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.